Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And we are on to episode 110. Today, my guest is Mary Burns, and she is the author of the book, Saving Eric, A Mother's Journey Through Her Son's Addiction. So she comes on to share some of her story and to advocate for good addiction treatment for all the people out there that need it. What a powerful story. And I could really feel her grief and loss at losing her son, Eric, to addiction. And uh, it was just so courageous of her to come on and share her story. So I hope it is helpful for all of you out there listening. Before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast and you're getting a lot out of it, please rate and review us in iTunes. That does really help get us a lot of exposure. And I think at this point, we're over 300 reviews, which is just incredible to me. I can't believe it. So I really appreciate everybody who has done that and taken the time to do that. It helps get this podcast out there and helps me continue to produce the Addicted Mind podcast. So thank you very much. Also think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and continue the conversation online. And also, if you'd like to join the Addicted Mind newsletter, just go to theaddictedmind.com and sign up. All right, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Mary Burns, and she is the author of the book, Saving Eric, A Mother's Journey Through Her Son's Addiction. Mary, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast, and this is such an important story that you have to tell. I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast have either lost a loved one 
to addiction or are scared about that or or are dealing with a uh, a person close to them that is struggling with addiction. So Mary, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. So please introduce yourself and and we'll start there. My name is Mary Burns. I um, I'm a mother of three and um, I'm a teacher. And I wrote this book about my son's struggle with addiction, but also mental illness. He struggled with that, which I believe, you know, led him uh, to using drugs. Why did I write my book? Well, my son always wanted to write a book about his struggle. Ever since he was in high school, he always told me, Mom, I, I want to write a book. I have to tell people about my struggle. I don't know if he understood then what he meant by his struggle, but towards the end of his life, we um, talked about writing it together. So after he passed, I decided to uh, continue on and try to continue with the book. You know, I think at the end of the book, I give him his voice and he, when he starts to come to terms with his struggle. So I, I, I believe, like I said, I gave him his voice at the end. I also think the book need, I would like the book to increase awareness or understanding of the difficulty of dealing with these issues, uh, mental illness and addiction, because I think if you have not dealt with it personally, it's very hard to understand how difficult it really is. And I think sometimes people in the helping industry don't really understand it unless you actually go through this. And like I said, like personally, you're living in a house with somebody that is suffering from this kind of, these kinds of things, mental illness and addiction, because my son struggled with uh, bipolar disorder. Right. Um, and right. also I'd like it to uh, begin a conversation about treatment, because I think uh, there's a lot in regards to addiction treatment that is lacking. It really needs to change. Absolutely. So I'm glad that you're coming on the podcast to share your experience and maybe help some other people out there. So the first thing I'd love to, to start with is just how did you start to know that Eric was struggling? When Eric was seven and a half years old, he started having these, I'm just going to call them little screaming fits. And they were very intense. And I they would just start suddenly without warning. And that was, I guess, the first sign. But they only happened, they happened maybe every four to six months. So in between, you know, he was that typical happy kid. He was a straight A student. He was an athletic. He had friends. I didn't see any other problems. So I was thinking that, you know, hopefully it would pass. Uh, he also is, was adopted. So I thought a lot of it had to do with his adoption. So I was hoping that as he, you know, grew up and we discussed it, eventually those, those I'm going to call them screaming fits, uh, would stop. But instead, as he became a teenager, they become, became much more intense into what I call them rages. So um, it got a little little tough. But that was my first symptom, which is unusual because most people don't show, show signs, at least I've been told and what I've read until they're teenagers. So he was seven and a half when I started seeing signs of that something was wrong. Right. But like I said, it didn't happen very often. So it's it's really hard when something only happens every four to six months. You know, it's not like it's every single day. So, and in between, he was Mr. Happy. Right. <laughs> so, okay. So you, in looking back, you can kind of see that something wasn't right here, that these fits were pretty extreme and out of character, it sounds like. Very out of character. Very out of character. Yeah. And so... As he started getting older and became a teenager, how did the addiction start? Or or how, how did he start to go into substances to, to maybe medicate that? I think that's why he did it. And, um, you know, I grew up in the 70s. So, you know, there were many kids that I knew of that smoked pot and drink, drank beer, and many of them turned out to be fine adults. So, I mean, I suspected, I suppose, you know, that, you know, he was drinking beer or smoking pot maybe on the weekends during high school. But I didn't think it would get beyond that. 
Did I talk to him about it? Did I tell him I didn't think it was a good thing? Yes, absolutely. We had a lot of discussions about drug use, but I think he was using it to medicate himself, of course, and it made him feel better. Maybe the harder drugs in particular. And I never thought he would cross the line into the harder drugs. I, I really didn't. I was shocked when he finally came to me and asked me for help. So he actually came to you and said, look, I need, something's going on here. I need help. Yeah. There was about a nine month period where his rages stopped. And I thought, wow, we got, we got over the worst, you know, the hormones are settling down. And I thought he was doing so much. I thought just, he was doing great. He was working full time. He was saving money. He had a girlfriend. He seemed so happy. But I, in looking back now, in retrospect, I would have to suspect that at that point he was using drugs and he was medicating himself. Uh, but yes, it, I would say he was probably addicted somewhere between six and nine months, although I don't know for sure. Um, I was never able to ask him. I thought I had a lot more time to ask him these specific kind of questions. And he just you know, came to me one day and he says, mom, I need help. I became addicted to drugs. So he asked me for help. Wow. I didn't have to figure it out. He asked me for help. So he knew something was going on and he knew he needed support. So what, what happened at that point? Well, at that point, I brought him to a detox hospital, a hospital with a detox unit, and the um, hospital turned him away. They told us that his uh, drug habit wasn't severe enough. So they sent him home. Oh, my goodness. So one of the things that I want people to understand is that when somebody asks for help, there's just a very small window in which they are, you have a very small window to actually really get them the help that they need. And my son asked me for help, and we were turned away. And nobody should be turned away. You know, treatment, as soon as somebody says they're ready and they want to get better, the treatment needs to be immediate. It needs to be aggressive. And in my opinion, it should be long-term. So we were left looking for help. I was, went home with them. He tried to detox at home. And, um, and then eventually I sent him to outpatient treatment because our insurance company would not, in the state of New Jersey, cover inpatient treatment. They would only, he had to go to outpatient treatment first. So you really didn't have any support? Not really. I had never faced anything like this before. Uh, you know, growing up, I didn't know anybody that had mental illness. I didn't know anybody with an addiction problem. So basically, you know, I called my insurance company, right? That's why you have insurance when something happens. And I knew I had mental health insurance because, you know, I had been, I had brought him to psychiatrists and psychologists, et cetera, throughout the years. And I knew I had substance abuse treatment, but, you know, I knew as somebody that doesn't know anything that's not well-versed in substance use disorder, you know, you go to your insurance company and you say, oh, they say 30 days, we'll cover 30 days. Well, okay. So you figure 30 days is treatment, but it's not treatment. It is just part of treatment and shame on the insurance companies for not giving you proper treatment because most people that I talk to that have been through uh, treatment for drugs, you know, substance use disorder, or know of somebody or have had children, you know, somebody very close to them, they say 30 days is not enough. Their brain is just starting to, the fog is just starting to lift and um, it's not enough. So things need to change. You know, we have an opioid crisis in this country. I'm going to say a drug crisis in this country, maybe in general. And I think one of the reasons why we have that is because people aren't getting the kind of treatment that they need. Okay. 30 days, in and then, you know, they're not ready. So then they relapse. So maybe if you're lucky, you'll get 30 days again. But my son, my insurance company only wants to give him another 10 days after he relapsed. Eventually they did give in and he got his 30 days, but that still isn't enough. It needs to be... Not at all. No, it needs to be, I'm going to say three to six months at least, and it needs to be concurrent time. Okay. At least I've been told, and I'm no expert, but I've been told by people in the field 
that it takes 90 days for the brain to begin to heal. So if that's the case, then why are we sending these people home in only 30 days, knowing that they're most likely going to relapse? When my son was in his first treatment facility, it was down in Texas, and they they had a great program for the family. So we went down and we were told that there was a 90% chance that he would relapse, that people with an opioid addiction would relapse, 90% chance, and he got sent home anyway. Wow. Oh my God, that's so disheartening and and just awful. It is awful. And, you know, I have to always wonder, because my son, if you read the book, uh, you know, at the end, a month before he died, he spoke to an AA meeting and a couple of people actually gave me CDs of his talking. So I listened to it. And he says, my, when I was in, his, in Texas, that was the first treatment program. He goes, I actually felt relief from my pain. Okay, relief from his pain, the pain that caused him to become addicted to drugs. So what if they had left him in that facility or allowed him to stay in that facility for another three to six months? Maybe he would have figured out how to deal with his pain. And maybe he would have healed internally, you know, at that point. Instead, they send him home. You know, he's not ready to deal with his pain. You know, the drugs are still appealing to him, so he relapses. So it's it's very... And he doesn't have the skills to cope with that internalized pain. He doesn't have the life skills. He doesn't have the support network that he needed to be able to kind of walk through that pain and, and get to the other side of it. And, you know, for most people... It, you know, when we're in pain, we can only stay in pain for so long. We're trying to find a way out and it is so difficult and painful. Yeah, that is exactly what it was with him. And he didn't know how to even, I don't think he knew how to describe his pain or I don't even know if he understood it because I brought him to, you know, psychiatrists at well, therapists and, you know, he really wasn't ready to open up or maybe he didn't understand it. He used to always say life is a struggle, but I don't even know if he could have explained it. So it was hard for him, I think, to even understand his pain. And for me, honestly, he was in between his rages. He was a wonderful son. He was a great kid. He had friends. He had always a girlfriend. He was in sports. You know, it wasn't like I had these glaring signs (laughs) of his rages in between. He was fine. I only ever got compliments from people about him and they loved to have him at their house, et cetera. So it was, it was very confusing for me, because I had this child that once in a while would just explode. And then yet for the rest of the world, the outside world, thankfully, he seemed to behave. So it was it was difficult. And I would imagine that's so hard. And I think you bring up such an important point because a lot of times we have this idea of what addiction is supposed to look like, this mythology of these horrible scenes of addiction, right? And everybody's just strung out. But many times people who are struggling... If you don't know them well enough, you may never even know that they're struggling with addiction. And sometimes they're silently reaching out for help and don't know how to get it or don't know, haven't met the right person to get it or they're struggling. But I think you bring up such a good point. Well, now that I look back in hindsight, I presume he was using drugs. And that's why, like right before he asked me for help. But honestly, I thought I had my kid back. I thought we were over the worst and he was healing and he was doing so much better. But no, he did not look like what I thought a person that was addicted to drugs looked like. He was working 50, 60 hours a week. He was he was saving money. He had a girlfriend. He had friends. He would come home. He would help me around the house sometimes. You know, it just, so no, there, there is no look, you know, for addiction. You know, there's, there's no one, you can't identify it in some people. You know, some people hide it well and he hid it very well. So once he came back and, and he's, he's with you, what did you start to do then? 
Well, we made him sign it. We, we had made an agreement with him. So he had to sign a contract that he would be home by a certain hour. He wouldn't go out every night. He would go to AA meetings or NA meetings. He was seeing a drug counselor to try to continue with the steps. But then, you know, and that was in December and he was great for the first month. But then some of his, a lot of his friends came back from college for spring, for winter break. And that was when he decided he wanted to see his friends again. And then, you know, that was when it all fell apart. But in the beginning, he seems very excited and he's like, mom, you know, I haven't felt this good. I can't believe I, I could feel so good not being high. So he felt really good. And we thought, wow, this is great. I was worried, very worried. I thought, wow, maybe, maybe we did it. And, you know, not knowing anything about addiction, I'm thinking, okay, 30 days, I'd set him on the right path. He's good. But um, he wasn't. Once his friends, you know, came home, they were all still into partying. And you know what? He was 19 years old. He wanted to have a beer with them as well. And he couldn't. And uh, it takes him a long time. It takes him until um, he's in and out of treatment, I guess, into his second year where we put him in a long-term treatment facility, which we pay for on our own because our insurance won't give him the kind of treatment that he needs, that he really starts to understand that, mom, I can't come home. I can't hang around with my friends. I just, you know, like he starts to understand that he needs to worry about himself. Right. um, Worrying about his friends and having fun. You know, he needs to worry about himself. So it takes a time, takes time for people to come to that conclusion sometimes. So, you know, when you're describing this, I'm thinking of someone who's really getting into recovery and, and starting to, to work hard on themselves and, and really starting to kind of embrace that recovery lifestyle. And then what kind of happens there? Well, towards the end of my son's life, he was living in Connecticut and he was like a leader. He was a leader up there. People looked to him. He was doing amazing. I, like I say in the book, I, I, the son that I, that I knew I raised, I got my son back. So I thought he had embraced it fully. Uh, four days before he died, he told me that he could do anything with the help of Jesus Christ. Like he was just, I just couldn't believe how well he spoke, how much self-confidence he seemed to have. And then four days later, for whatever reason, I don't know, I can't even imagine why. He um, takes drugs and overdoses and dies. So I don't know why. I don't know what prompted him. I wish I could figure it out, but I just don't know. I just, I guess that just goes to prove how insidious drugs are, that even somebody that is doing so phenomenally well, that has been helping so many other people could still succumb to the disease. So it's just that horrible, the disease. And so fast. Very. Yeah. Oh yeah. It could just, I mean, I, I stood with him four days before he died. He came home and we're talking and we're having the greatest afternoon. He's talking about the future. We're trying to figure things out. And he just, and then four days later, I get a phone call that he's gone. So I can't even begin to imagine what happened. And that has to be so, so hard. I would imagine to just really, in in some ways, not know what, what happened. Yep. Someday I hope to see him again. And I hope that he can explain it to me because I really, I don't know. Uh, we really thought my son and I, my other son, you know, after I told him he died, we just thought he had a brain aneurysm or something. There was just no way he did drugs. We were just, right. there was no way. There was something else. He did have a, a, a near, um, the day before he died, the night before he died, he went to the doctor. He left work early, which he never did, never. And he was uh, diagnosed with a severe ear infection and a severe sinus infection. So, I don't know. Maybe he was in so much pain that he thought he could just get rid of it temporarily, just once. Maybe, no, yeah. No, uh, I can only uh, I can only guess. I have no idea. He didn't leave. There's no notes. It wasn't a suicide. You know, it was just a shock. 
That's all. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, with addiction, we could just be impulsive in those moments and it just happens. Yeah. I mean, I think people that, as I say in my book, you know, he hadn't made good decisions for a very long time. Throughout high school, he didn't make a lot of good decisions. And he had a a physical illness, which may have helped that along in terms of him not making good decisions. So even though he was in recovery for 11 months, you know, there's still learning and they're still trying to understand how to, you know, figure things out, I think. And, and although I, you know, I would have thought that we were much closer to that and that he would never have fallen backwards the way he did. Yeah. What I would like to, to talk about a little bit is is the the grief and the loss of your son and all the grief and how you coped with it and how you dealt with it. Because I know that there's people listening to the podcast that have lost loved ones to addiction. and if you could talk to that, I, I think that would be helpful for a lot of people out there. Well, um, there's not a day that goes by and it's been eight and a half years that I don't think of him and that I don't get teary eyed. You know, I mean, I don't end up Absolutely. break down yeah. and cry, but that I don't get teary eyed or choked up. Um, he's with me all the time in spirit. How did I deal with it? Uh, I think my faith helped. I really feel like he's in a better place. And that even though I couldn't save him, you know, which is one reason why I wrote the book, I was trying to save him. I do believe in death, that he is at peace and he has been saved. If you read the book, I've had had a lot of signs since he's died. And I take those as, mom, I'm okay. So um, I take... I take solace in that. Yeah. In your book, you you talk about several dreams that you you had. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, the dreams were so real and so vivid that I have to think that he was there. Many years earlier, I had a friend die and she came to a dream. She came to me in a dream and I felt the same way. And it was the same kind of thing. I felt like he was there. And one of the dreams, he is on the couch in the living room or sitting in a chair and he's telling, and I'm asking him, What's, what, what are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do tomorrow? And he won't answer me or he's answering me and I don't understand him. So finally, I lean over him and I said, what, do you, what are your plans for tomorrow? And he just can't answer me. He just smiles and turns his head and disappears. And I just think that, you know, he's in heaven. There are no tomorrows. He couldn't answer me. That's how I sort of interpreted that dream. Right. And the other one, he's um, comes down and he's giving me a big hug and he's like, mommy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should have called somebody. Oh. And then he just melts away. So, you know, I don't know. Oh, Mary. There's, yeah. There's, there's, <laughs> there's, you know, another one where he's driving in a car, you know, and, um, People are coming at us and they're dressed for a marathon, you know, and then he falls asleep at the wheel and he knocks everybody over. So I took that as, you know, the the uh, people that were running towards us were, you know, the demons that bothered him on earth. And then when he fell asleep, he he died. So he ran over everything that, you know, like he, he destroyed anything that was, mm-hmm. that was, you know, all the demons that tormented him on earth. So there, there, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on dreams, but, you know, I, I woke up like feeling like I had to figure out what that meant. Like he was trying to tell me something. Right. So, I mean, those are, that's a brief description of them. So. Well, I think, I think that is, is just so beautiful to, to think of it that way. You know, I think as parents, when we lose our children, it's so hard to make sense of it or to understand it. And it's just so difficult, but holding on to those things that, we can, you know, how we can remember them or, or, or these dreams and how we can see, I guess, the goodness through all the grief and the loss. Yeah. I mean, I just try to remember, you know, the good times with him. Yes, there were 
some really rough times. The first part of the book talks about the mental illness and the struggle with me trying to deal with that and trying to figure things out. But I just try to remember the good times because in between all the the craziness, you know, he was a really good kid. He was talented. He had, you know, he was just, I mean, he was funny. He was all, he was a really great kid. I always say that he struggled with life and he could see the goodness in his life, but he let that reflect off of him. And for some reason, the negative things in his life, they seemed to, he seemed to absorb those. And it was unfortunate. And I, and I don't know how I tried to get him to see the positive in life, but he just always seemed to, the negative he absorbed were the positive, like he just let it reflect off of him. So it's unfortunate, but um, I do believe he's in a better place. Not to say that I don't miss him. You know, I always say that makes me, that helps, but I still miss him. It doesn't make me miss him any less. Well, it's kind of like when I when I when I talk about grief a lot. At least my own experience of it is is really being able to make friends with the grief and loss and help it inform our own life, and and that's the value we get from these losses and and you know Eric's loss and and from that is that if we we can use that grief in a way that helps us create more goodness in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm involved in addiction advocacy since his death. And um, my myself and another mother who lost a son, we have started a walk in our area. It's called Changing the Face of Addiction. And we raise money for a nonprofit that helps people with resources that want to recover that don't have resources that, you know, gives them treatment. So um, the money is donated to them. And I just think that in terms of the book, I think that people that go through this kind of thing that deal with mental illness and addiction, you know, the stigma has to change. There's a lot of change that needs to be made and we need to start speaking up about it. Right. And I'm not ashamed of my son. I'm not ashamed of our story. I just, I think that more people need to share their stories because I mean, my son needed help. He asked me for help and I couldn't get him the help. And that's horrible. That should never happen. If he had had any other disease, if he had cancer and he needed six to eight months of chemotherapy and radiation, he would have gotten it. But instead, you know, we were left, you know, struggling to try to find him treatment. So I think we all need to start speaking up a little bit more because this really needs to change. People should get the treatment they need. Absolutely. And and I think like what you're saying is if someone has cancer, they can they can go get treatment. But we know like when people are in emotional pain, it is like they're in physical pain and we have to treat it that way so that they can get the support that they need and get out of that pain and you know be part of this life they deserve that and absolutely people who are addiction don't choose that no one does they choose to take drugs okay and but they don't choose to become addicted to them okay so that's that's different i mean and a lot of people i know people that drink alcohol every night but i wouldn't say that they're an alcoholic but my son, if he drank every single night, he would become an alcoholic. So it's definitely brain-based. There's a switch that goes off, went off in his head that doesn't go off in certain people's heads. Then he became addicted to the substances. So, and I think the medical community sees it as a, a an illness, okay, a, a disease. And I think that yeah. the treatment or the insurance community needs to start seeing it as an illness and needs to start giving treatment that is appropriate. And if it means, you know, six to nine months in an inpatient facility, that's what people should get. Because maybe we wouldn't have the crisis that we have in this country if people got the right treatment. Maybe they wouldn't be going through this revolving door, I call it, 
where they're in a treatment, out of treatment, in treatment, out of treatment. Maybe if we gave them the tools right off the bat for six to nine months and really made the treatment intense, maybe we wouldn't have the situation that we have with the drugs, you know, the drug crisis, as they call it in this country. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, when someone is addicted, they need that long-term support to give time for the brain to change and adapt and repair itself and get the tools to do that as well. And addiction is treatable, you know? And that's what's so sad is that so many people who have this can't find the resources to get it, can't find the places to, to do it. And there's just not enough out there. And as a society, I don't think we're doing enough to treat addiction. Well, I mean, I don't think we're treating it correctly. I mean, I think, you know, the 28 days that most insurance companies will pay, and I can only talk from the point of having like a private insurance, which I was grateful to have, but it's not enough. They're just putting people through saying, okay, we gave you treatment, but no, that's, you know, we need a new treatment protocol, maybe, you know, uh, that 30 days doesn't work for most people. Some people it does, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. I've known too many people that have relapsed too many times to think that a 30-day program works for most people. Yeah. And the 30-day model was based on old science, was based on old information when, you know, when we looked at addiction as a moral issue, you know, as, as a, some kind of moral failing and, and not a brain disease that people need help with that can be treated. Yeah. And it can be treated, but it needs to be treated correctly. And, and we're not changing that old model. And we need to start changing it. And then, you know, once the inpatient treatment is done, let's say three to six months, then people need to like go into an outpatient kind of program or continue on. Because, you know, a lot of people with substance use disorder, like my son, I mean, he struggled with mental illness. He struggled with a bipolar disorder. So the more times whenever he failed, that just made it harder for him to think he could ever get better. Because, you know, he, he, depression was part of bipolar disorder. So that would just depress him more. So that only makes it harder for the person to get better. So we really need to rethink, I think, just treatment in general. And, I, you know, I hear often, well, treatment, you know, it depends on the individual. Okay, yes. And I realize that you might modify treatment and, and it might be a little different for some people than others. But generally speaking, I have a feeling that if everybody was given three to six months of inpatient treatment, we'd probably have a lot better outcomes. Okay. Now, can it be so cookie cutter? No, it, it, it may not be cookie cutter, but neither is cancer treatment. I've known many people that have had breast cancer, okay, and their chemo and radiation treatments, it's generally speaking, they have chemo first and radiation, but of course, those are treatments are tailored to their specific needs and their specific kind of cancer. So yes, there could be some specific tailoring done in terms of addiction treatment, but I think overall, it needs to be that people should be given long-term treatment and then maybe with follow-up with outpatient, I mean, I'm sorry, inpatient treatment long-term, and then maybe follow-up later with the outpatient treatment. And yes, it can be individualized, but there's got to be a certain protocol that works. And I think we, you know, it might be out there, but we're just not looking for it, I don't think. Yeah, and I, I think anybody who's struggling with addiction and in recovery is they may need that inpatient treatment, but then they also need that long-term. And when I'm thinking long-term, you know, I'm thinking a year or two years of continuous care with therapy and support groups. And maybe they're not going every single day, but they have that support network until their brain can really adapt and really get this the skills set in. Because a lot of times for for addicts, you know, they're they're in recovery and life shows up and some kind of event 
that's painful or difficult comes into play and they need that extra support to walk through it in a healthy way and uh, kind of learn how to do it. And you don't know when that's going to show up. Like you were talking about your son and, and, and an ear infection. And some of those things can, for someone who's struggling with addiction, kind of kick off that addictive thinking again. You know, I got to get out of this pain. I can't feel this. I could just do this. And yeah. yeah. And so definitely. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, in the book, I sort of uh, go through his, you know, treatment, I, uh, you know, and, and the uh, frustration with it and how it really wasn't enough. So I, I'm hoping that it makes people understand that we really need to rethink it. We can't just keep sending people through, oh, 30 days, 10 days. Oh, well, just go to meetings. I mean, meetings are great, but meetings aren't enough for a lot of people. And, and even the uh, attitude, you know, it, it, even the attitude at uh, AA meetings and even for uh, some of the treatment facilities that my son was in. And I, and one of your podcasts, I think was about this. The, uh, the prevailing thought was that you have to always hit rock bottom. Right. Well, to a 19 year old, what is rock bottom? I mean, he is just going to keep on going. Like, don't tell him that. And he was told that by therapists. He was told that by AA people. Like, I just don't even understand why you would tell somebody that they have to get worse before they can get better. Well, I was just going to say that that comes out of a lot of a lot of the older mythology around addiction treatment that came, you know, out of out of early twelve step stuff when when the medical community didn't really take addiction seriously. They didn't know what to do, so they just kind of ignored it. So some of these philosophies come from an old paradigm, and we're learning that you know some of this stuff just isn't true. You know, you don't have to hit rock bottom. There, there's not, there's, there's no such thing. And no. you, you can, you can get help right now if you want to make that your rock bottom. That's fine, but you don't have to destroy your life completely to to get help. Yeah, but I think a lot of yeah, a lot of uh, people are still telling those that want to get better that they still, I mean, that that's still being told to some, maybe not everybody. It would be nice if that paradigm would change. I would think that's a great thing. I have a friend who's been uh, in recovery for 30 years and she's very involved in AA. She's uh, She was shocked when I told her that. And she said, no, we never tell people that. We tell them that they're going down an elevator and they can get off at any floor. They don't have to get into the basement first. They don't have to go to the basement first. So I think that's a much better analogy. Yes. And I think that we need to start changing that because too many people are, at least when my, I mean, this is eight years ago, but if they're still being told that, especially if you're 19 years old, you don't know what rock bottom is. And why should anybody have to hit rock bottom? You should not have to get better, worse before you get better. You know, if you're ready to get better, you should be able to get better, but you just, you need the tools and you need the treatment to help you get better, which was not available for my son. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that you are putting out all of this information now to help people who are struggling, to help parents who have children who are struggling with this. And so many, I mean, I know so many people, they're, they're dealing with their, they're just like Eric, they're dealing with that and they don't know what to do and they're lost and they're scared and they're frightened. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the book could appeal to a number of people. I think it could appeal to parents going through the issue with a child or somebody close to them because they won't feel so alone. I also think it might be good reading for somebody going into the field of trying to help those, you know, therapists, because if you haven't had this type of experience, you may not really understand it 100%. I also think it might, young kids could use it and they might identify or see themselves in my son and maybe it would help them to ask for help and reach out. So I think it's important that we share our stories and I'm hoping that it 
makes a difference. I'm hoping that it starts the conversation about treatment and I just um, hope it increases understanding. So we'll see. Oh, thank you, Mary, so much. So tell me, you know, somebody's out there listening and you want to tell them one message. What would you say to them? What would you want to tell them? If it was like a parent and somebody that a loved one of somebody that wanted help for a substance use disorder, I would tell them to get them into long-term treatment program. And I would tell them to fight with their insurance company if they have insurance to try to get it paid for, not to take no for an answer because my son was turned away from the hospital twice when I tried to get him into a detox unit. And I think that we have to start, they shouldn't take no for an answer and they have to really fight for what they believe their loved one needs. So that's one thing. You really need to fight for the treatment that you think your loved one needs. And I don't know, for those that are have lost a loved one, I don't know. The grief is going to be there forever. I mean, eventually you'll feel better, but you'll always carry it with you. And I don't think there's anything I can say to make them feel better, you know, 100%. But I'm just hoping that we have to start coming together, I think, to get changes made. And the only way we're going to do that is if we're not afraid to speak up because the stigma is there still and we need to change that. So um, I think we just, overall, I think we need to all start speaking up. Definitely. And letting our voices be heard. And yeah. you putting your voice out there, I think is going to help a lot of people. I hope so. <laughs> you know, Eric always said he wanted to write a book and we started talking about it before he died. And I just felt there was this push, somebody was pushing me or something was pushing me to write it. So, it, I mean, all to, I started writing this when he was a senior in high school at the end of his senior year. So it's 13 years in the making. And I just, it always, even after he died, it was like, I got to finish the book. I got to finish the book. And then I put it down for a while and it never left me. So I just felt like it was something that I needed to do. I'm not sure why. I hope something good comes out of it. Well, I think something already is good that is coming out of it. You know, you're here and you're sharing your story. And I think that is a beautiful thing too. Because someone's going to listen and hear your story and hear Eric's story. And it's going to help people out there at that time when they need it. I hope so. I hope so. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to hold the I know so. I know so. Um, you know, so your story is so valuable and Eric's story is so valuable. And I just want to say thank you for sharing it and having the courage to come on and talk about it because so many people don't say anything and don't share their story and kind of hold it inside. And it's when we can come together as people and share our pain and our grief and our losses that we can all heal. So I appreciate it. And, and I appreciate you coming on and contacting me and saying, look, I have this important story to share. So it is important to hear. And um, thank you so much, Mary, for, for coming on. Before you go, how can people find out more information about you or get in contact with you if they want to know more? How can they do that? Well, I have a website. It's called savingeric.com. So they can contact me uh, that way. And well, that's it. And then they can purchase my book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, or Austin McCallie USA, which is the publisher. Awesome. And I will link all that in the show notes as well. So people can get it there. Thank you, Mary, for coming on and sharing your story. All right. Well, thank you for having me, Dwayne. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. Wow. I really appreciate 
Mary coming on and just so honestly sharing her story and her grief. If you would like to purchase the book, you can go to theaddictedmind.com forward slash 110. And I'll also have a link to her website as well. So you can check that out. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. I really appreciate it. That really does help a lot and gets us a lot of exposure and allows me to continue to produce the Addicted Mind podcast. So I really appreciate that support. Also, if you would like to continue the conversation online, you can join our private Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation there as well. And think about joining our newsletter. Just go to theaddictedmind.com and sign up. I will let you know when new episodes are released. And uh, if any other new information comes, I'll be sending it to the newsletter as well. So think about signing up. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day, and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.